0: All right, good morning. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let's do that again. Good morning. There it is. you that's, 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 like that. Um, welcome out, online if you're watching. Again, as Bob said, our, our fellow church in Tanzania and, and wherever you are. If you're here, um, again, for the first time, this should be an interesting uh, message to walk into if you thought that our conversations about sin and repentance over the last few weeks have been fun. Buckle up. (laughs) Um, No, this is going to be a good message. But before we get going, it's fall. The weather's changing. It's time for a good Jesus pun. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) He never leaves. Leaves. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, credit where it's due. This is from a website called blessedgirl.com. Somebody else sent me that, and I was like, it's too good not to use. Yeah, and they said, I bet some people at church... Bottom, like autumn, bottom. I was like, dude, it's getting too much. It's too much. Anyway, you can take that down before the, gro- the groaning continues. Um, let me pray. We'll get going this morning. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here. Jesus, we love you. Father, thank you for who you are. Um, God, I pray that you, you speak to us and through us. Um, and you open our hearts this morning to hear you in a way that... Um, that we have kind of forgotten that you, that you present yourself to us and that can be a little uncomfortable for some of us, but I pray that, that you open us to hear uh, what you have to say and the beauty of your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. All right, let's go get donuts. <laughs> That's all I want to say. Um, our scripture this morning is wrapping up Ephesians chapter 5, right? And it's 13 verses that many of us have heard before, right? We're familiar with it. If we, if we haven't uh, heard them from the Bible, chances are you've heard them at a wedding or something like that. But it's a set of verses that in our day and age can be hotly contested and can very quickly raise the blood pressure throughout a room, right? Like Bob said, that's because throughout history, right, this is a passage that can be very easily misunderstood and can and has been twisted, right, to create harm both in the church and in culture. Probably more times than any of us care to count, it's been used that way. Right, we're talking this morning about Paul's teaching on husbands, wives, submission, headship, and all the fun concepts that go with that, right? So before you tune out on that, trust me, this is going to be a really unique message this morning, which is why we're doing it for two weeks, right? This is not, oh, husbands one week and wives the next week. This is uh, We're going to talk about some things this morning that I, um, I doubt many of us have ever heard or considered in this context. Um, and... <clears throat> To me, it's one of the most profound reasons um, that we, let me put it this way, we have to understand this context if we're gonna understand the content next week, right? Clearly, this passage uh, requires that we deal with the content of the passage. I can't just get up here and give you some overview of things, right? These are verses that people go, okay, I wanna know what you believe on that. I wanna know what you understand about that. But without the context around that content, right, these teachings can very easily seem like antiquated rules from a long-past patriarchal culture, right? Um, Let me put it this way. You know, we're going to talk about this morning, I'm just going to give you an overview. We're going to talk about God as spouse, right? And how he presents himself that way throughout scripture. Men, I'm going to tell you straight away, this is a topic that gets uncomfortable for men, right? Men don't typically like to think of God as a spouse, right? Women have a much easier time with it in that way. But I'm going to ask you to lean in. I'm going to ask you to, to think about this in a way, right, as we're thinking about this, what I want you to do is I want you to think about when you met your wife, right, um, and the love that you felt, right, that kind of thing. Equate that in a different way because um, there is a greater context here, right? There's a greater context to the way that Paul and Peter and the early church leaders taught about the relationship between husbands and wives, um, and it's very, it's very important, um, and as Bob said, when I, when I first talked about this, I, I thought, boy, I can't do this justice in 40 minutes. And I came to him and said, I really want to teach this over two weeks, and here's how. And he was like, okay. I talked to him, and he's like, I see it. Let's do that. Let's do that. But let me be, so before we get into that, let me be clear on what this message is not. Okay, Talking about marriage comes with the natural idea of gender roles and this kind of thing. This is not a message on the greater culture wars around sexuality. Right? We're not going to talk about that kind of stuff. If you have questions about that, Bob is the one to answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is also. I can give you his email in a minute. Yeah. Um, this is also not a message on all things marital, right? This is not a message marital series. We're not going to talk about you know raising kids and money and how to communicate and that kind of thing, right? Um, and, and, and this is the most important. This is also not a conversation about a man's authority over a woman. I want to get that out of the way really fast. Okay, if you've heard that in the past or you've lived under that idea. You're not going to hear that message from here, right? That somehow there's this hierarchical thing, um, you know, that, that makes a woman somehow feel less than in the relationship, right? And that's not because we're somehow a progressive theology church, right? We want to teach that. It's because that's not what the Word of God says. Okay, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to let that out there. Um, and when I talk about the harm, trust me, we're going, to, we're going to delve deep this morning, and next week you're going to hear all kinds of the context of that right part of the reality there is our our access to information these days right gives us an ability to unwind some of the things that have uh, the ways that scripture has been misunderstood throughout the ages right so i am deeply committed to the accurate interpretation of the word of god absolutely um, and i and i will say this we're going to talk about the fact that headship is real right Authority and headship are just different things, okay? So if, if you're like, you're gonna hear me this morning and be like, I ain't coming next week because I know what he's gonna say about this. Uh, trust me, you have no idea what, we're, what you're in for, okay? In a good way. So <clears throat> um, what do you think, of, what is the Bible? Let's start there. Okay, well, very good. The Bible's the Word of God, thank you, yes. What are some common subtitles we might give to the Bible, right? <clears throat> Things you hear are curious, right? It's God's love letter to humanity, right? It's life's operating manual, instruction manual. Basic instructions before leaving earth. There you go, right? Your, 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 your acronym, what? TM. TM, <laughs> the trademark, I like it, yeah, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> um, I don't like any of those titles, frankly, Right? I would submit to you that this, that that the Bible is fundamentally the story of God's intention for and relationship with humanity. That includes our role in creation as a whole, our relationship to the larger spiritual realm we can't see, and the purposes of his design for all of that. Those other titles tend to be a little focused on us, in my opinion. And when I say that, it's God's story. I mean that. It's a story. Okay, don't hear that wrong. I'm not, talk, I'm not saying the Bible's fiction. What I'm saying is the Bible's not an academic work, right? The Bible is not a systematic theology textbook, right, where um, God acts as a professor trying to clearly and concisely communicate a concept. It doesn't work that way. So before we get going too far, let me read um, the passage we're going to deal with this morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, as we know, what we call the book of Ephesians, right, is properly a letter Paul wrote to the people that he knew in a context he knew, with circumstances he knew, and a relationship that surrounded all of that. Right? So to jump into this passage like, like we can just understand the context and if it's as if it's supposed to be some cohesive, holistic teaching on the nature of husbands and wives, it's kind of like walking in on the last scene of a movie and pretending that um, you know what's going on. Right? And you can figure it out. right? So like if you walked in on the last scene of a movie like this. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You to. want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. All right. How many of us have seen that movie? Okay. How many of us are familiar with that quote? <laughs> right? But so here, I mean, right? But here you got two guys shouting at each other in a courtroom. Who's Right? Right? You walk in, you've never seen the movie, you walk in on that, that scene and you're like, who's, doing the, who, who's the right guy here? They're all yelling, you can't handle it. What does he even mean about that? Is that a truth, right? So, without the greater context of that story, you can't possibly understand it. You might be able to poke around a little, you know, think about it a little bit. But there's just as much of a chance that you'd be wrong as, there, as you'd be right. And so it is with Scripture, Right next week we're going to get into the content of this passage and we're going to talk so much more like I was saying about the how our access to information can unwind some of the improper understanding of the content right But before I get started listen I need to give a little disclaimer here a couple things one the bible is not a whitewashed book okay if you think the Bible's boring, it's probably because you haven't read it, to be totally honest, <laughs> right? <clears throat> the Bible, there, are, there is language used in the Bible that would never show up, that will never show up in a children's Bible study to begin with. Um, second of all, if it, if it was translated into a meme, it would be under the, like, NSFW category, right? Not safe for work. Like, don't open this at your desk, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> And I don't mean language that people use in the story. I literally mean the thus says the Lord straight from God to the mouth of the prophet kind of language. Like God says some things that even though our English versions tend to try to tone it down, they're still pretty graphic, to be honest. And, and specifically in the context of Israel as a bride and these kind of things. Like it's not you know, we're not going to deal a ton with that language this morning, but if you go and look up some of the references I give you, just keep the kids in the other room, (laughs) or don't read it out loud. Um, We're not going to deal with a lot of that, but, you know, we're talking about marriage, right? It's hard to deal with marriage without some conversation about the idea of of sex and the intimacy between a husband and wife, right? These things are real, right? We'll, We'll treat them with respect, but we can't pretend that they don't exist, right? We would do well to learn to understand these things and speak about them in a godly way, right? Also, let me be clear. This is not a message for married people only, right? And as Bob and I were talking, what I'm also not gonna do is go, singles, lean in on this because you'll be married someday too, right? That's, no, like that's, Right? I don't care if you're married, if you're divorced, if you're single, if you're a young person that's too, too young to even think about being married. Right? This is a message for the church. Right? What we're going to talk about is the context of the church and a fundamental way of understanding your relationship with God that I believe has been really lost and, and undervalued. And so I want to make that clear. Lean in on this regardless of who you are this morning and what your life state is. Okay, so let's jump into uh, what I think is the most important context about this. Okay, Somebody answer this question. What was the first marriage God ever designed? Okay, there we go. That's the expected answer, right? Everyone says Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve was the first marriage, which makes sense right, from the perspective of us as humans who like to think of things at a beginning working toward an end. But what if you're a timeless, infinite God who sees the end from the beginning? Right? What if you are the God who is both the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end? If we jump to the end of the story, what do we see? Revelation 19, 6 to 8, right? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure the marriage of the lamb see the man in the garden was not the start of marriage marriage was a grand design before the beginning of time not a function of god fixing the plight of a lonely fella Right? See, God didn't get halfway through the story and be like, I've got to come up with a good way to talk about my ch- Oh, marriage. Oh, that's all. T- Let's do that. That'll work great. Right? God gave marriage to Adam and Eve because in almost every aspect, it, f- it is full of types and shadows of the relationship of Christ and the church. Right? It wasn't an afterthought. And this is why this topic is so important to understand. Right? There's a reason that when Bob or I officiate a wedding, right, we'll read this passage and say, why submit to your husbands? And then immediately we have to go, but submission is not what the world says it is, right? Because people get all puckered up and you know, up in a tizzy. <clears throat> and like Bob was saying, one of the ways to recognize why this topic is so important is the effort the enemy puts in to destroy it. Right? The biblical model of marriage has been under constant attack throughout time. From the garden right, to the first century church, which we'll talk about next week, right up into our culture today. Right? The attacks we see today are not new. <clears throat> the enemy is constantly trying to tear this down because of the foundational importance of this idea. I can sum it up this way. God designed marriage before he designed man and woman because it is one of the primary ways which he wants us to see him and relate to him. Okay, and this is what we're gonna focus on this week that will lend so much context to the content next week. Okay, so lean in on this. Here, One of the reasons I think we've lost sight of the the... Context of seeing God as spouse is that we tend to lean towards seeing God as father, right? Because that's primarily how Jesus spoke of him, right? So many of us don't understand this concept of God as a husband to his bride. We talk about Christ and the church and we talk about this, but we don't ever really connect this, right? We pray to the father and we say, father, do this and father, that. And, but we, I don't think we see God as spouse and husband to us in our daily lives. And it can honestly get a little mind-bending because God does present himself both as father and as spouse in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, look at this verse. Returnal backsliding children, for I am married to you. Okay? He uses the language of both a father and a spouse in the same verse, right? The distinction here is usually one of Father to the individual children of Israel or the church, right? But his spouse to his covenant people of Israel or the church as a whole. Right? There's a distinction there between his covenant people as an entity and the individual members of that group that may or may not individually live up to the covenant. Right? When the nation of Israel went astray, usually because the king led them that way, it was the nation of Israel that was talked about as having committed adultery, right? Similarly, God does act as father toward his children today, but he presents the church to the world as his beautiful bride, his beloved and chosen partner in his work here on earth. Okay, great, I can stop there, right? We all know Christ is called, I mean, we all know that the church is called the bride of Christ, so that's fine, let's move on to the content of the passage. But it goes so much deeper than that, right? It doesn't mean that there aren't aspects of God's husbandry that get reflected in our individual lives, because we'll see that too. But it means that we, don't re- that we relate to each other, right, as siblings here in the church, not as wives, multiple wives of, of, of a husband, right, which, let's be honest, could be awkward, um, would be a great fodder for a reality TV show, um, Although we may be late to the, the game on that one, but yeah, right? So this, this is not how we relate to each other as, uh, right, in the church. We relate as as siblings and children, but as a whole, we are the spouse. So let's jump into the details of how God presents himself this way and, 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 and the deeper reflection of what it means for how the church functions, right? Again, as we do, listen to this with new ears, Right? Listen to hear not only the amazing representations that God gave us this way, but listen to understand how God feels about you and how he feels about us and how he sees us and the level of depth and intimacy he desires in our relationship with him. See, it's well known in the Jewish culture that a lot of Jewish wedding traditions come from the framework of the account of Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. What do, what do we typically associate with Mount Sinai? Ten commandments. Ten commandments, perfect, thank you. You guys are on point this morning, right? Right, there's actually, Moses came down with the tablets, actually a lot more than the Ten Commandments on the tablets, right? It actually fills four chapters of Exodus, um, but we, we, that's the part that we tend to think was on there. Right, so let's look at why the Jews saw this as a marriage covenant throughout their history. Right, well, I'm gonna read some excerpts from these, but you can see this. Right, Exodus 9, 3-20, this was the ceremony. God calls Moses and tells him to say to the people, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Exodus 20, 20 verse 1 through 23, 3. This is the right, four chapters of the beginning of the law. This is the stuff that was on the tablets. Right? These are the vows of the groom. Right? To which at the end, he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to a place I have prepared. These chapters start with the Ten Commandments and they end with God's promise to bring the people into a land he has prepared for them. Okay, Remember that phrase, prepared for them. Exodus 24, this is the bride's vows. Moses came to the people and, all, and, and told the people all the words the Lord had said. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do And Moses sent young men of the people of Israel to offer burnt offerings. In Exodus 24, And Moses took the blood from the offerings and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. See, this is how the Jews understood their interaction with God at Sinai. And we'll revisit that more in a minute. But let's look at a couple more specific passages, right, of how he identifies himself more directly as a husband to his covenant people. This is Isaiah 54, 5. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Ezekiel 16 is a passage where God describes the duration of his relationship with Israel in this manner. From the time he found Israel as an abandoned baby and rescued her, to watching her grow, to marrying her, and on to her betrayals and violations of their marriage covenant. He repeats this language throughout the Old Testament, calling back his wandering bride to him. Jeremiah 2, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown. Jeremiah 3 8, I gave faithless, faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Indeed, the entire book of Hosea, the minor prophet, is God coming to the prophet and telling him to marry a prostitute named Gomer, it's an unfortunate name, who continually runs away from Hosea, only to have God say, go bring back your wife. God uses the prophet's entire life as an allegory for him and his people. Hosea 2.2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from her bosom. But then he goes on later in Hosea 2 and he says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. See, time and again, God doesn't present himself as a father dealing with disobedient children, but as a husband scorned and abandoned by his adulterous wife. So what does that tell us about the nature of God's relationship with us? What does that say about how God cares for his people and how deeply he wants to know them, to know us? How many of you ever read the Song of Solomon? How many of you know what it's about? How many of you don't even know there's a book called Song of Solomon? Okay. <laughs> Good. Right. Song of Solomon is a book about two lovers. It is a back and forth between a man and his bride, and it is explicitly sexual, albeit in an ancient Jewish kind of way, right? The groom in the song says at one point, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost their young. I, uh, I don't suggest using the phrase flock of goats in your next anniversary card, but it's up to you. I'll leave that there. Right? But then it also goes on to say this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king take me into his chambers. How many of you knew that was in the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, Like, why is this even in the Bible? Right, I found this quote on Reddit, right, in a discussion about Song of Solomon, and I think it reflects the way probably a lot of evangelicals feel. Why is the Song of Solomon read at all? I've read parts of it. Maybe I don't have the training or education, but as far as I can tell, there's nothing religious in the whole book or even relevant to the rest of the Bible. Right? A lot of us feel, have probably felt that. If, you, if you're familiar with that book, you've probably asked yourself that question, like, what is this, right? For more context, here's a video about two men talking about worship songs they don't think are appropriate and that the church should refrain from playing. Your love has ravished my heart and taken me over, taken me over. All I want... Is to be with you forever, with you forever. Pull me you, you a little do, you closer. You do the rest because it gets too creepy for okay. me. Okay. It, it, it is. It I is mean, creepy. It, it, yeah. We're talking about Jesus. Yeah, we're talking about this is supposed to be... It's supposed to be about Jesus. Right? This gets too creepy for me. Your love has ravished my heart. Now look at this. Song of Solomon 4.9. You have ravished my heart. With one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. See, here we have lyrics from a song that come directly from Scripture being called Creepy by two men given a stage at a Christian conference. Do we need a better example of our complete lack of understanding of the context of God as husband in our church culture? Now consider this quote, another quote from Reddit, right? this one on the Song of Solomon, this one, from a guy who's a Jew explaining why Song of Solomon is read every Passover in synagogue. The Song of Solomon is interpreted allegorically as the love between God, Solomon in the text, and the Jewish people, the woman in the text. Since the man and the woman in the song are described as groom and bride, it makes sense to read the song on Passover as we recall the Exodus from Egypt when God and the Jewish people became betrothed, the marriage was completed with the revelation at Sinai, what we talked about earlier. This connection is explicitly mentioned in Jeremiah 2.2, 2, which we also talked about earlier. Go and call out in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, so said the Lord, I remember for your sake the loving kindness of your youth, the love of your bridal days. You're following me in the desert in a land not sown. Right, what do Christians celebrate around the time of Passover? Easter, nice. Three for three. Well, to go. well done, people. Now, imagine if next Easter we said, hey, what we're going to do this Easter is we're going to read the most graphically romantic and sexually charged book of the Bible during service to reinforce the idea of God's covenant love for us as a people. Would you invite your friends? <laughs> Do you see how far off we are from understanding this idea? And yet it is the primary way that God identified himself with in his relationship with his people. And why do we see that? Because of the garden, right? Because it was the first thing, the fundamental thing that he'd established. With Adam and Eve. He didn't establish fatherhood first, he established marriage first. Okay, so someone's thinking, well, if that's the case, then why didn't Jesus present himself this way in the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Yeah. Right, what was Jesus' response when asked why his disciples don't fast? Right, Mark two nineteen 19 to 20. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. For the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. John 3, John the Baptist, spoke of Jesus as the bridegroom and himself as essentially the best man. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bridegroom, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins and the bridegroom, him. But most profoundly, we need to consider a couple of passages that we have read time and time again. And I think this is possibly the best example in Scripture of how a passage can explode with color and meaning when we actually take hold of the cultural context around the story. Let me describe to you a Galilean betrothal ceremony in the time of Jesus. The son would come with the father to the house of the woman he was going to marry. The son would put a cup of wine on the table and if the woman accepted the proposal, which she was not obligated to do, but if she did, she would take a drink from the cup of wine. The son would then take a, cup, a drink from the cup as well and he would say, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink, drink it with you in my father's house. Meaning the wedding celebration. The son would then return to his father's house where he lived as well, and he would start to build a home for he and his bride, usually as an addition on the house of the father. Right? The father would watch the progress of the son, right? And only when the father said, It's good enough, would they go and retrieve his bride. Because of this, the timeline was not set. And so the bride and her attendants and the groom's attendants had to prepare themselves to be ready at a moment's notice. Sound familiar? Matthew 24:36: "No one knows the day or the hour when the son will return, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Only the father knows when he will send the groom back for his bride. John 14, two and three. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will surely come back and take you to be with me so you may also be where I am. Jesus says he goes to prepare a place in his father's house. Listen, the Jewish disciples listening to this would have understood this language. Right? It'd be like if a guy said to his girl, hey, I'm going to go shop for rings and then I'm going to take you to a ridiculously expensive dinner at a restaurant you know I can't afford. (laughs) Right? You you know what's coming. Right? The disciples would have understood this. This is language they used. It's probably twisted their minds up a little, right? Here's their Messiah who they're assuming is going to conquer the Romans and he's talking to them like a bridegroom proposing to them. But if that wasn't confusing enough, things were about to get downright mind-blowing. You remember the cup the betrothal ceremony? Right now, consider the words of Jesus at the Last Supper that we have heard so many times. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, to be specific, that phrase, right, I won't drink of this vine until I drink it again with my Father's house, was actually pretty specific to Galilean betrothal ceremonies. Right? You see the language here? How many of you thought Jesus was just foreshadowing the fact that he was going to die and couldn't drink wine anymore? right? Like, oh, yeah, I can't. I'm not going to drink of this because I'm going to be dead and I can't do that as a spirit, right? But that's not what the disciples at the table heard, right? Peter was married. He's like, I said that to my bride-to-be. So imagine sitting there with Jesus celebrating the Passover which means you probably may have just heard Song of Solomon, but even if you didn't, you knew very clearly what this represented. This represented God's betrothal to Israel. And in the middle of dinner, toward the end, Jesus goes totally off script. He grabs a cup of wine, and he starts giving a new betrothal ceremony. What are you thinking in that moment as one of the disciples? Like, I have to think that you could have heard a pin drop, right? As they slowly passed the cup one to another and drank and said, is, is this happening? Did, did he really say that? Like, is, did I miss something? Right. Do you see how the context brings this passage to a depth that you've never considered? Right? We say those words every week. This is the cup of the new covenant and the blood of blah, 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 blah. Right? But their minds would have been reeling with what Jesus was saying. He was renewing their perspective as of God as groom and telling him, I am that very groom. This is a new covenant. This is who I am to you. So yes, Jesus very much presented himself this way, the same way God had throughout history, as a groom wed to his bride in a covenant marriage, represented but with an intimacy that only a husband and wife experience here on earth. This idea is anything but creepy. It's the way God wants you to know him as a loving, leading, sacrificial husband. And it was so important to him, again, that he made marriage, the representation of that covenant, the very foundation of family and society. So now let's look a little bit more at that side of it. We're going to get into a lot of specifics next week on the amazing ways that God made, especially women, to reflect God's design as the church because that, that, that side of it reflects deeply how the church is supposed to operate here. We're gonna talk about men too clearly. But let me give you a little teaser on uh, one of the ways that the church and the bride parallel what we find in earthly marriage. Women are the only creatures in the universe capable of bringing forth a new creature that bears the image of God. How many of you have thought about that? In the same way, the church is God's chosen instrument to bring forth the new creation of redeemed humanity into the world, right? We do this through the church's proper union and intimacy with our spouse, God himself, right? Just as a husband and wife bring forth life from their unity in marriage, Right? Yeah, sex, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Right? Neither one can do it on their own. Right, It comes from a union of partnership. Right. Now, do you see the church and God that way? Do you see God as spouse with a partner intimately connected to him to do his work? Right? But someone will say, well, God can save people on his own, can't he? To be sure, that's happened. He can do that. Is that how he intends to? To work though, See, this is where the imagery of God as a spouse is far more accurate and potent than the imagery of God as a father. Because if we see God as father, we're prone to see ourselves as children, right? And there's definitely a power dynamic there, right? Children are used to sitting by and watching their father do something, right? Or watching their father teach them how to do something. But that's not the image of a properly functioning marriage, if it is, you, you need more help than this sermon's gonna give you, to be honest. Um, see, if we understand the way that God set things up at the beginning, we understand that we as the church are his spouse, his chosen partner and helper. And then our role becomes, it comes more deeply into into focus. Right, see, if we're not acting like the partner and spouse to God that we are, it will be because we fail to realize that God has things for for us to do, both corporately and individually, that he has delegated to us, right? Like spouses share a partnership. If we don't do those things, they don't get done. He doesn't walk in like a father and pick up the pieces of our spiritual laziness and go, I'll just clean your room because you're not doing it, right? That's not how it works. There are people that will not get saved because we don't tell them about the gospel. There are people that will go hungry because we don't feed them. There are people that will be lost and despair because we don't take the time to care, serve or sacrifice in love, because we don't take the time to be the spouse that does the work of the kingdom. And if it's, that sits wrong with you, I'm sorry. Right but before you get angry at me go read what God said to Ezekiel about his responsibility as a watchman the accountability that God gives him is sobering he puts the the blood guilt of a, of someone's life on Ezekiel if Ezekiel doesn't speak to that person not a new concept right We are God's chosen spouse here on earth, his helper to manage his house and advance his kingdom. It is a clear mandate in scripture and it is our responsibility. This is the way that God set up his church and therefore marriage is a reflection of that purpose. But not only does marriage not function that way outside the church, it often fails to function that way inside the church, right, in our earthly lives. And see, that's a result of the curse that was laid on Eve, right? Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. A lot of translations read, your desire will be for your husband, which is a bit misleading, um, it makes it sound like sexual desire or longing for a mate, right? But that's not, uh, that's not accurate, to be honest. It's the opposite, right? The same word used in that chapter is the same word God later uses when he talks to Cain and says, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The idea is the same. Sin seeks to devour Cain and to take him over. And in the sinful order, a woman will seek to take the position of a man in the role God intended to him. It's not for her, her desire for a mate, but a desire to rebel against that order and take his place. And on the other side of the coin, God says the man will rule over her. Does anyone see how easy it is to overlay that curse on the subjugating patriarchal structures that have run the world throughout history, right? Men dominating women, women trying to manipulate, use their beauty and their wisdom and their power, right, to take that over. Um, I mean, it's easy to see for me. I would hope it would be for you. This is the way of the world, and it follows us right down to the present day, and just as men dominated women, right, so they sought to manipulate men and take their place. The only bright spot in the whole story is God choosing a people of his own to show that he was still a tender, perfect husband. But even still, the people of God, like an unredeemed woman, sought to manipulate and replace him. This is the story of the Old Testament and why God continually described Israel as an adulterous bride who can't stay faithful to him despite his faithfulness to her. So next week, we're going to talk about how the new covenant and the presence of the Holy Spirit changed all of that, right? How it redeemed that whole idea back to the original purpose for marriage, it is no longer a place where men rule over women. Right? It is no longer a place where women seek to put men down. But for now we are right still only the betrothed to our husband to be. And therefore, when this tenuous position of being a bride trying to make herself ready, waiting for the moment's notice when her groom will come for her. But are we a people preparing ourselves as a beautifully adorned bride? Or will our groom find us maybe in sweatpants and an old T-shirt, right? Still a mess, sitting on the couch when he comes. Oh God, I've been waiting for you this whole time, right? See, this is where the perspective of this context matters, right? We are not a bunch of helpless children waiting to be picked up from daycare by our heavenly father so we can go home with him. We are a betrothed bride to the greatest husband in the universe. He chose us as his beloved. And so we should say with the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. But do we act that way? So again, next week we'll apply all of this to the context of the passage and we're gonna delve deeper into some of the kind of the ground level function of marriage and how it works because of this context, right? Again, I'm not gonna stand up here and give you arbitrary rules about how a household should be run and how men should be with women and how women should, it's not, right? This context defines all of that. So again, please come back next week, make a point to it. I guarantee you're gonna hear some amazing things that you have never considered. Um, It's gonna be good. It's going to be good. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. We love you. We glorify you, God. For your love to us as a spouse, as a deeply intimate, loving partner, a God who partners with us in a way that is deeply empowering, that is profoundly effective for the work of your kingdom here on earth. God, I thank you that you are not one, a spouse that puts us down and, and, and orders us around and two, you're not a father that just tells us we're silly little children. Thank you for all that you have planned and intended for us to do and I pray in the name of Jesus you'll, you help us to take hold of that this coming week and in the, the years to come. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we got prayer team in the back. If you'd like someone to pray for you or with you, um, that is available. They'll have lanyards on back there. Again, we have the healing prayer Um, directly after service so I will ask this we only do this once a month so um, if you're here for healing prayer again like Bob said please come up here give us about 10 minutes that'll allow the band to break down and then that'll allow us to get organized if you're not going to stay please do me a favor there's there's Krispy Kreme donuts downstairs and coffee Um, please kind of make your way out of the sanctuary on a more expedient level this week um, just so we can can have some some quietness in here um Communion, we're gonna do communion, right? As we, you, again, you don't have to be a member of this church to do communion here as long as you claim Jesus as your, as your Lord, um, you're welcome to come partake in communion. As you do today, take that cup and sit and think about it. Think about what, think about, I want you to picture Jesus handing that cup to you and going, drink, drink of this and know who I am to you. you guys can come up if you want to oh yeah thanks so um the band's gonna play but um as we do we'll have uh, wine up here with bread and gluten-free crackers there's juice bread and and, and crackers back there there's also self surf cups if you'd like to serve yourself but um feel free to kind of make your way up here and uh we'll go there thank you guys